Hello again and welcome to Book of the Day. I'm Chloe Veltman. For today's double header, a pair of gritty novels set in 1970s America by two well-known names from the world of books and media. Many audience members will know Jake Tapper as the anchor of The Lead on CNN, but he's also a novelist. In a bit, we'll hear NPR's Scott Simon chatting with Tapper about his new thriller, All the Demons Are Here. Before we dive into that, let's go to Simon's recent interview with best-selling author Dennis Lehane. Set in 1977, Lehane's new novel, Small Mercies, deals with the desegregation of public schools in Boston. The plot centres on a mystery, a hunt for a missing girl. At the same time, it explores big themes like how racism is passed down through generations, as well as the tension between the need for desegregation of the school system and the needlessly harmful way in which it happened. Here's Scott Simon. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. There's a memory from his childhood that Dennis Lehane has never managed to shake. The best-selling novelist of Mystic River, Gone Baby Gone, Another books recalls the summer of 1974. The city of Boston had erupted in protests over court-mandated busing to desegregate public schools. Dropping home, his father took a wrong turn straight into a protest, and from the back seat, young Dennis Lehane saw what looked like life-size dolls hanging from street lamps. People lit them on fire, and it was it was medieval, and it was it was um, a very strange thing to be trapped in when you were nine years old. Dennis Lehane's new novel, Small Mercies, is set during that summer of 1974. A black student dies in a baffling subway accident. A white teenage girl goes missing. And uh, a note to our listeners, uh, our discussion will uh, refer to the use of racial epithets. The novel follows the girl's mother, Mary Pat Fennessy, on the hunt for her missing daughter. She is loving, hardworking, ferocious, and a very specific protagonist for Dennis Lehane. I've known a lot of Mary Pats, and I'd never seen them represented in literature before or on film. There is a certain type of woman, usually a woman who came out of the projects that I remember from being a kid, but also some who just lived in, you know, they lived in what we called three decades. Um, Women who came from uh, poverty, and they were capable of going toe-to-toe with a man in a fistfight. That wasn't saying they'd win, but they were capable of doing it and they were reasonably fearless. So I got this image in my head of a, of a woman getting back talked by somebody, a ma- a male and beating the hell out of him in a bar. That's kind of where I started. Mm. At one point following up in one of her own leads, Mary Pat goes to Harvard Yard. She feels that students and hippies and, to use her terminology, snot noses are all staring at her. Why? Because she's poor. Um, she doesn't fit in this world. If you were to take the subway from, I think it was seven stops, from Broadway to Harvard on the red line in Boston, you, you know, that's changing worlds. It's changing cultures. It's changing its vast economic difference. It's a route that I took when I was a kid. Um, my mother 
insisted that I take piano lessons, uh, which I did not want to do, but she made me take piano lessons with this nun over in Harvard Square. And so I would, every Wednesday, take the subway from Columbia Station, which is where I grew up in Dorchester, to Harvard Square, get out. And I don't know if my mother intended it. I know my mother wanted to give me some type of culture, but what happened to me was I didn't take to music, but... 20 bookstores within a square mile in Harvard Square when I was a kid. And that's what I took to. If I got early, if I got there early, I just wandered bookstores. And and it opened up my eyes to the world. So when Mary Pat goes there, she says at one point she would feel more comfortable in another country, Ireland perhaps, um, than she would feel in Harvard Square. Mary Pat doesn't like the idea of school busing. Uh, black kids from Roxbury bus to South Boston, white kids from South Boston to Roxbury. And at one point, she muses that the politicians who support it, like Teddy Kennedy, are, quote, profanity alert, are, quote, just another case of the rich f- in their suburban castles in their all-white towns telling the poor people stuck in the city how things are going to go. Pretty compelling argument, isn't it, for, for both blacks and whites? Yes. And that was something I really wanted to examine, that desegregation of the Boston public schools had to happen. So on one hand, you have what needed to happen, which is desegregation. Then you had the method by which it happened, which was selective force busing, which was not necessarily a good idea. And it was a case of the neighborhoods, the working class neighborhoods, once again, being told without a vote what they were going to do. And the people who constructed that social experiment could sit back without it affecting their lives one bit. Let me ask you about the language. Um, Of course. Yeah, a lot of it's raw. Yep. A lot of racial epithets. Yes. Those are are hard to use these days, aren't they? They should be, but they were very easy to use back then, at least where I grew up. Mm -hmm. There's a photograph on the front of the book that was taken by Eugene Richards. This is a, a, a little boy looking up. It looks like mounted policemen, and it says, Southie, God's country, on the back of his T-shirt. Yes, and that was a Eugene Richards shot taken uh, during a busing protest uh, right out in front of South Boston High School. And to see it now and to see the, the graffiti that he captures and graffiti that was written all, all over the city, not just South Boston, but all over the city, including KKK. Um, including uh, the worst racial epithets you can think of, and kill all the fill in the blank. Um, that it's it's shocking and it's sobering because you realize you can't hide from those photographs. There's a a line that's been ringing in my head of yours. Hate takes years to build, but hope can come sliding around the corner when you're not even looking. Oh, that's that's uh, that's my favorite line in the book. I'm glad. I'm glad I got you. Um, The book is very much about the price of hate. Mary Pat will acknowledge that she has some racism, but she she doesn't understand the depths of it at all. She thinks, well, compared to all these other rabid racists around me, I'm not really that racist. And this becomes a journey for her to understand the terrible legacy of her racism, the way it was passed down to her, the way she passed it down to her children. And, and how it's all ultimately connected to everything that goes on in this book. 
and um and that's the the great tragedy and at one point she she comes to a realization that that it's something that was sold to her and that then she sold it to her own children and she has this heartbreaking line for me because i didn't even plan the line it just popped out of me which is you know they know they always know even at five they know that what you're telling them is a lie but you wear them down and then ultimately they embrace it nobody's born racist just not doesn't happen i mean it sounds ridiculous to say that this late in the world's becoming if you will but you don't see two four-year-old kids show up at a playground and not play with each other because one's black and one's white but by eight that may be very likely so i i really wanted to look at it as this this virus that is handed down generationally and and that's that became the impetus to write the book that became what in in some ways was an expulsion for me I think of of things I've been carrying around inside of me since I was nine. Is Small Mercies your last novel? I don't know. I really don't know. So I'm out of contract for the first time in 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been swept up into this wonderful world of um, premium television that I love. I'm a social being. It was never natural for me to sit in a room pecking away all the time, alone. So. This book, though, was written while I was actually running a television show, and it came out of me because it needed to come out of me, which is how you become a writer in the first place. So is it my last book? I don't know. If it is, I'm okay with that. That's great. It seems like a good mic mic drop to me. But if it's not, it'll be that another book needs to come out of me, not because I owe the publisher a book, not because of my deadline, not because... You know, I'm worried about my agent's bottom line. None of that. I just will need to tell a story. And if that happens, I would love to write another book. Dennis Lehane, his new novel, Small Mercies. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Like Dennis Lehane's Small Mercies, All the Demons Are Here has a domestic drama at its heart. The thriller follows the children of a US senator and a prominent zoologist, but larger forces are also at play. It's 1977 and the country has just suffered through Watergate and the Vietnam War. Jake Tapper's narrative is awash in disillusionment and the rise of tabloid journalism. Here he is with Scott Simon. Some of the names from the 1970s that roll by in Jake Tapper's new novel. All the demons are here. May need a little explanation. D.B. Cooper, Wayne Hayes, Wilbur Mills, Anita Bryant, Son of Sam, the nitty-gritty dirt band Willard Scott, and moderate Republicans. But the author includes footnotes. Jake's new novel leads us through a story that also includes Evil Knievel, Elvis Presley, Woodward and Bernstein, ufologists, ufologists, cultists, U.S. Marines in Lebanon, and the rise of blaring sensational headlines. 
Jake Tapper, who also anchors the lead on CNN, joins us in our studios. Thanks so much for being with us. It's great to be here, Scott. I listen to the show every week. It's an honor to be here, really. Thank you. We're honored to have you. What what grips you about this period, the 70s? It was just insane. It was just a wild, <laughs> it was just a wild time. I mean, the truth of the matter is, this is my third novel, and the first one takes place in the 50s, the second in the 60s. I was going to skip the 70s because I remember them vaguely and they seemed really lame to me. What I remember from the 70s is gas lines and malaise um, and Elvis dying. But I was cautioned, no, 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 no. You're remembering them wrong because you were a kid. Look into them. And they were wild. The story revolves around a brother and sister, Ike and Lucy Martyr, son and daughter of U.S. Senator Charlie Martyr and Margaret Martyr, a prominent zoologist. Ike is a U.S. Marine war hero, but AWOL when we meet him. So 1977 is also an era where people really start to ask tough questions about the military expeditions that the Pentagon and the presidents uh, send our young men and women into. Um, 1977 is a period of, it's post-Watergate, it's post-Vietnam. People are realizing that their government and their Pentagon have been lying to them. And Ike is caught up in continued U.S. military adventurism. This is a fictitious military operation, but it goes wrong. And it was just a time when disillusionment, I think, was a big part of the culture. And Ike is a stand-in for the rest of us in that sense, that he just, he can't believe the flippancy with which the Pentagon and politicians send, in his case, uh, him and his platoon of Marines into danger for a nonsense adventure. Lucy Martyr, his sister, is a reporter on the verge of a huge story. She goes to work for a rich and unscrupulous British media family. You, I mean, you don't have to dance around it. It's, 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 it's very, it's loosely but directly based on Rupert Murdoch, who obviously hails from Australia. But yeah, yeah I mean, some of the quotes that I give to the, the dad, uh, Max Lyon, uh, who is setting up his media empire in the United States with a tabloid in D.C., the Washington Sentinel. Some of the quotes that I give to him are directly from Rupert Murdoch uh, in biographies and uh, documentaries that I've that I've watched. And I, he is an incredibly important player, love him or hate him, and there's a lot to hate, but he's an incredibly important player on the world stage and certainly in the United States. And 1977 is when the New York Post starts really – getting its footing this because is of a headless body and topless bar <laughs> with that era. So and I try to get in the head of Rupert Murdoch, AKA Max Lyon by trying to explain why there was this desire and, and need really for tabloids, which was, there's a quote in the book um, that is directly from Murdoch, but I give it to Max Lyon, which is something like, I don't know any industry that proceeds to give the consumers what they do not want. Yeah. And that was, and th- that was often said of, of yeah. Murdoch, that he had revitalized newspapers. He'd made yeah. them popular again. But then the problem is when you chase the headlines and you use fear and, and rage instead of uh, other emotions to sell papers. And then you end up with, you know, a few decades later, the Dominion lawsuit and $787.5 million settlement, et cetera. What traces of the 70s do you see today? A lot. I mean, first of all, obviously, the, the rise of, of tabloid journalism – which you know people might call clickbait today uh, when they're referring to the same kind of idea of you're just trying to get eyes, you're not trying to inform. It wasn't invented in 1977, but it certainly rose. 
1977. And that's one of the themes of the book with uh, what Lucy has to write. She's writing about a serial killer in D.C. The Lyon family sees what's going on with Son of Sam in New York and they want to replicate that. Yeah, in they, DC. Want, they want their own serial killer. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and they have one. Uh, and then um, I think a lot of the anger in politics has been with us for certainly decades, if not centuries. But the mistrust of government I think really took root in the 70s, post-Watergate, post-Vietnam. Um, uh, and I don't think it's ever let up. I've got to ask you one CNN question. Of course. If Donald Trump called up CNN mm-hmm. in the middle of your show mm-hmm. and said, I've got something to say, I've got news to make, would you put him on? Oh, that's such a tough question. I mean, I, I'd want to, I mean, that's a tough decision to make in the fly. I mean, I think we'd want to know, well, what is it <laughs> before we put you on air? I'm very reluctant to cover a campaign event live. I just think, like, no matter who the candidate is, just because I don't know what value that is uh, for viewers. Um, but would I take a live interview from any presidential candidate who stands a chance and is a credible candidate? I mean, my knee-jerk response is yes, um, with obviously reserving the right to cut him off. But I do think with somebody like... Donald Trump, who is, I mean, I don't, I don't think this is an opinion. I think like he has been proven to be reckless with his words to the degree that there has been violence committed based on things he has said, lies he has told. I think you have to think about taking him live. I'm not saying you do, you do or you don't, but I think you have to think about it because he is so reckless with his words. Lucy Martyr, your reporter character, becomes part of what I'll call a, a mistake that has consequences. Yeah. Do we worry enough about that in journalism? Do we worry about that enough? I think that we have corrected a lot since after 9-11. There was a lot of inaccurate reporting about this individual was seen doing this, that individual was seen doing that. And then after the Iraq war, when the media was not skeptical enough of the allegations and charges being made by the Bush government, um, I think we have corrected a lot. It's still not enough. You still see it. But I remember after the Boston Marathon bombing, there were a lot of sleuths online. And I saw very little of that ending up in in mainstream media, by which I even include, you know, most newspapers, most TV shows. But there was some very irresponsible stuff. Pictures of people that were not related to the Boston Marathon bombing. If I, re- if I recall correctly, The New York Post might have posted a picture on its cover, right? Yeah, I think so. Of two individuals that were not – they had backpacks and they were young men and they were not white, but they were not responsible. They had nothing to do with it. And that ended up being another lawsuit that the Murdochs had to settle. uh, These two individuals were just innocent residents of Massachusetts. You know, so a platform and a voice is a very powerful thing and it can be really used to do damage. And we see that – all the time exploited in by bad actors on social media and we in the quote unquote mainstream media i mean we we really have to be responsible about that sort of thing i think most people are but i think there is an element that is not and i think it lives today i mean what you're describing that lucy experiences in the book is something that we we do see today when when people are demonized on uh, far right media or far left, I suppose, too. But it seems to be a bigger problem with the far right right now. When people are demonized in far right media, it has consequences. Jake Capper of CNN, his new novel, All the Demons Here. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Scott. It's an honor as always.
Well, that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Chloe Veltman. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Samiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Lena Mohammed, Megan Lim, Justine Kennan, Martin Patience, Deepar Vaz, Ashley Brown and Shannon Rhodes. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. When you book through Capital One Travel using the Venture X Card, you earn 10x miles on hotels and rental cars and 5x miles on flights, and you earn unlimited 2x miles on all other purchases. Plus, receive a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. The Venture X Card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.